I want to encourage you to open your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Revelation, chapter 20. And while you're looking there, I've just got an update on Bruce. And so let me just share with you um, how to pray. Um, The doctor just came in. He has a pulse right now. He is on the breathing machine. He had no pulse when he got there to the hospital. So that is good news. But but, um, let's continue to pray. Even as we open up God's word this morning, let me encourage you to be interceding for Bruce Buttram and his family. One day, the fact of the matter is, this world as we know it is going to end. And when it does, it's going to usher us into eternity. And here's a fact. Everybody is going to spend eternity somewhere. The only question is, where are we going to spend eternity? Now, today we're concluding a five-part series where we've been looking at the end times. We started by looking at the signs of the times. What is the world going to look like as we approach the end of this age as we know it. From there we move to the rapture, that event when the dead in Christ will rise and and those believers who are still alive will be caught up in the air to be with the Lord forever. That rapture ushers us into an event that we call the tribulation. The Bible also calls it the wrath of the Lamb. It is that seven-year period of time When God's wrath is being poured out on a sinful world that has refused to repent and turn to him and accept his love. During this time, Satan is unleashed with all of his power on planet earth. That is the tribulation. So during the tribulation, we see Satan's power upon the planet. But we also see God's judgment, God's wrath upon the planet. Now, as the tribulation comes to an end, Jesus will come back. He will defeat Satan, and for a period of time, he will throw Satan into a bottomless pit. Satan will be held in captivity. And for a thousand years, Jesus will reign on earth, peace will reign on earth, and it will be like heaven on earth. If the tribulation could be described as hell on earth, the millennial reign of Jesus can be described as heaven on earth. There's no war, there's no sickness, there's no suffering. Jesus rules, Jesus reigns for a thousand years. Now at the end of this thousand year period, we discover that that God unleashes Satan for a period of time. Now you say, why? The answer is, we don't know for sure. But there are two possible reasons. The first reason is to show us that regardless of how long Satan is is in captivity, Satan never changes. He is always going to be the great deceiver. He is always going to be the one who rebels against God's authority. And it also shows us that sinful nature never changes on its own. A thousand years of perfect peace will not change man's sinful heart. A perfect environment will not change man's sinful heart. The only thing that can change man's sinful heart is an encounter with Jesus Christ. That is the only thing. 
When we come to that point, when we admit our utter hopelessness before God, we recognize our sinfulness before a holy God, and we repent, we turn our lives over to Jesus Christ. And so that is the millennial reign. But as the millennial reign comes to an end, we see that there is a judgment that takes place for some and a joy that takes place for others that is based upon the choices that we have made in life. You see, the choices that you make in life are very important. And no choice is more important than the choice of what you will do with Jesus Christ. You see, when we come to the end of this age as we know it, and we are ushered into eternity, some of us will face a horrifying judgment. There are others of us that will begin an incredible experience of joy. And the choice is ours, which one we will face. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. First of all, I want us to focus on the judgment that awaits the unrepentant. You see, when we read about this judgment in in Revelation chapter 20, we need to understand that this judgment is not for everyone. This judgment is for those who have rejected God, those who have refused his forgiveness and mercy and are unwilling to repent. Now, believers will be judged. We will be judged for our works, but our salvation has already been judged when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You see, my sins were judged on Calvary's cross. And when I humble myself before God and accept his gift of mercy and grace, my salvation is secure, my sin has already been judged. And so this judgment that we read about in Revelation 20 is not for everyone. It is for those who are unrepentant. Listen to what it says in the book of Revelation. In chapter 9, it says this, The rest of mankind that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that they cannot see or hear, that cannot walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. In Revelation 16 verse 9 it says, They refused to repent and glorify Him, God. In verse 11 it says, They refused to repent of what they had done. Don't miss this. The Bible says that that these people refused to repent. They refused to repent and give glory to God. They refused to repent of what they had done. Their sinful deeds, their sinful actions. Now Peter said this. And Peter was a man who needed the forgiveness of God. And he was a man who radically experienced The forgiveness of God. Peter said this in 2 Peter. He said, the Lord is patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God's desire is that everyone repent and experience salvation. Jesus said this. He said, unless you repent, you too will perish. In other words, Jesus said, apart from repentance, there is no salvation. In the book of Acts, we are told that we need to repent and turn to God so that our sins may be wiped out. Understand, hear me, look me in the eye. Repentance 
is that forgotten part of salvation. Listen to me very carefully. You can be lost and believe. The Bible says that the devils, the demons believe and even tremble. You see, there is a belief that does not lead to salvation. If I believe with my head the facts of the gospel, and yet I've never repented, I am not going to be saved. We need to understand that it is only belief that is coupled with repentance that saves us. But what is repentance? Understand, repentance isn't feeling sorry for my sin. The Bible says that, that there is a sorrow that leads not to repentance. I can feel sorry for my sins. I can be sorry for the results of my sin. But that is not repentance. You see, repentance is a change of mind. It is a change of mind that results in realizing who God is and realizing who I am. Repentance involves humbling myself before God. Repentance involves acknowledging that God is God and I am not. It is turning from doing things our way and surrendering our life to God's way. That's what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. That's why many people describe repentance as a 180 degree turn. It's a complete change from what we were before. Listen, this final judgment is for those who have never repented. Now listen to what it says about this judgment, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne judgment and him who was seated on it. Heaven and earth fled from his presence and, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now we call this the great white throne judgment. The Bible says this about judgment. It is appointed unto man once to die, after that, the judgment. Now, what I've discovered is the unrepentant oftentimes think that somehow, some way, they will avoid disappointment. They may choose to believe that disappointment will never happen, but understand, everyone who has rejected God's love and rule will stand before Him and give an accounting of their life, the choices. That they have made. Now notice what it says. It says that the unrepentant will stand before Jesus. The Bible makes it clear that Jesus is the one who will judge. Romans chapter 2 verse 16 says. And this is the message I proclaim. That the day is coming when God through Christ Jesus. Will judge everyone's secret life. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We will receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Jesus said the Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. Think about it. The one who has been rejected 
is now the one who will judge. One day, every single person is either going to meet Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, or they will meet Jesus as their judge. The atheist is going to meet Jesus. Those who don't believe that he is real, the humanist is going to meet Jesus. The one who believes that man is the center of the universe. The materialist is going to meet Jesus. The one who lives for worldly pleasure, the scoffer, the scorner, the skeptic. They will all stand before Jesus. And notice what it says about Jesus. He is seated on a throne. He's not seated on a bench like most judges. You see, this throne represents his authority. And the Bible tells us it is a great throne, throne telling us that, that his authority is the ultimate authority. It is the final authority. Notice it is a white throne representing the purity and the integrity of the judgments that, that come from that throne. No one will be able to argue the rulings that are made from that throne. Now notice who John saw before the throne. He saw the dead. And let me remind you, we have already seen that believers have already been resurrected in the first resurrection. And so every believer has already been resurrected. This resurrection is for the unbelievers. Understand, death is not the end. Death will not keep you from your final appointment with God. Some people desire that death would be the end. That we live our life the way we want and then we die and that's the end of everything. But understand, God created us to be eternal beings and death is not the end. At this time of, of the second resurrection, the unbelievers will be rejoined, their souls rejoined with their bodies and they will stand before a holy God. One's body may have been cremated and the ashes spread upon the ocean, but those ashes will come back together. Another person may have been beheaded and their, their body is separated from their head. But, but in this resurrection, they will come back together. Others may have been buried in mass graves with, with lots of other people. But at this resurrection, God will know what bone goes with what bone. And everyone will be resurrected and stand before Jesus. You see, death is not the end. It can't keep anyone from this appointment of judgment. Can you imagine standing before the throne of the one who died on the cross? As people look at him, they will see the nail prints in his hands. They will see the scar in his side from where the spear was thrust. They will see the scars on his body where he was beaten without mercy. And at that moment, if never before... At that moment, they will know that God is a loving God. And then it says that the great and small will be there. The bank robber and the petty thief will be there. The mass murderer who made headlines and the hit and run person who killed someone that no one knows about. They will be there. Everyone will be there. The crook on Wall Street and the crook on Bad Street. They will both be there. No one is so important that they will miss this appointment. And no one is so unimportant that they will get out of this appointment. Heads of state will be there. Entertainers will be there. Religious leaders will be there. Politicians will be there. Beggars will be there. Homeless people will be there. And everything in between. 
The self-sufficient will be there. Those who felt like they didn't need some sacrifice for their sins. The godless will be there. Those who have said they did not need God's moral compass to guide and direct their life. The procrastinators will be there. Those who know what they need to do and are planning to one day do it, but never get the chance to do it. Religious leaders will be there. Church members will be there. Think about it. Think about how many people are on our church rolls who never come or hardly ever come. And add to those the people who don't serve, the people who aren't living in community with other believers. You see, the Bible says that church members will be there. And it says that everyone who is at this judgment will be judged according, get this, to what they have done. You see, I can either be judged by what Jesus has already done, or I can be judged by what I have done. Those who are at this judgment are those who have decided to stand before God on their own. They have rejected God's gift of grace. They have rejected God's love. And the Bible says the books were open and another book was open. Now at least three books are going to be opened at this judgment. You say, what are they? We know what one is. We can speculate on what the others are. I believe one of them is the book of the law. Uh, the Bible, God's Word, it, it tells us of God's story. It tells us what God expects of us. And maybe as God opens up the book of the law, He opens it to, to the Ten Commandments. And a person sees how in word and in thought and in deed, they have broken these commandments. Maybe He opens it up to Malachi chapter 3, to the church member. And He shows us how God requires us to be good stewards of what God has given us. And we realize that we have it. The book will be open. The book that shows what God expects. And then I believe the book of man's works will be open. The book of man's works will display everything that man has done. The good and the bad. Every thought, every desire, every motive will be examined by God. And we are told even those things done in secret that we think no one will ever find out about will be examined by God. And so man's works will be examined. Man's law will be examined. And then the Bible says that the book of life will be opened. The book of life records the redeemed of all ages. In some places, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. When a person's name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, every person has a choice. We can either receive a free pardon from God, or we can receive a fair trial from God. The choice is ours. We can receive mercy or we can receive justice. It's up to us. But every one of us will make the choice. And understand the only way to make it into heaven is perfection. Because heaven is a perfect place. And the tragedy is the Bible says we are all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says there is none righteous. The Bible says our very best efforts are like filthy rags 
compared to what God desires of us. And so we will be judged by what we've done. And then the Bible says that the unrepentant will be thrown into the lake of fire. There will be no appeals. There will be no paroles. There will be no second chances. There's no hope. This is the final judgment. And everyone who is before the throne of God at this judgment will be cast into the lake of fire. The same fate fate that Satan receives. And what is it like? How bad is it? This lake of fire. Well, let me just say it's worse than you and I could ever imagine. You say, is there a literal lake of fire? I don't see any reason not to believe that this is literal, but, but understand, I want you to look me in the eye. If the lake of fire is figurative rather than literal, then you need to understand that the reality is far worse than the lake of fire could ever describe. It's more horrifying than we could ever imagine. Separated from God forever. Separated from love forever. All alone in darkness. The Bible says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the most tragic thing of all is to realize that we did not have to be there. There's no uncertainty about this. Our sins will find us out. Every single person will stand before God, either a Savior or judge. And I'm here to tell you that if you have never humbled yourself before God, repented of your sins, and placed your trust in Jesus, then right now you're on the path of standing before Him as a judge. But I don't want to stop there. Because understand, the lake of fire was never intended for you and I. God has something much better planned for us. Something much more wonderful in store for us. And the only way that we can go into the lake of fire is if we reject God's get out of hell free card. That's the only way. We reject what Jesus Christ has done for us. God doesn't want you to go to hell. God doesn't want you to go into the lake of fire. God wants you to spend eternity with him. So let's move forward and see the second truth here, and that is the joy that awaits the redeemed. No, it's incredible. Now listen to what it says in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cause from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, there are three things I want you to see. And, and you know that we could spend hours and days about our eternal home. But I want to share three things with you. First of all, our eternal home is a prepared place. John tells us that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. You think this one is beautiful? Wait until you see the new heaven. Wait until you see the new earth. Think about the most beautiful places that you have ever seen on planet earth. Uh, the, the lush gardens, the beautiful mountains, the grand canyons, the magnificent waterfalls. Think of it all and then realize that all of it is tainted and scarred by sin. But he's going to make it all brand new. Think about the heavens on the most beautiful, clear night ever. Think about the splendor of the stars and realize that everything has been tainted by sin. And he will make everything new. And then it says that, that John saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming out, out of heaven, prepared as a bride for her husband. There's hardly anything more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. And, and that's the description that John used to describe this holy city that you and I will inhabit. I don't think it's possible. I think it's absolutely impossible for you and I to picture the beauty, the splendor, the wonder of what God has prepared for us. Paul said it this way. He said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. R.G. Lee said this, he said, heaven is the most beautiful place the mind of God could conceive and the hand of God could create. Now, why does God make the earth and the heavens brand new? Why does he do that? Can I tell you what I believe? I believe he does it so that we can experience it. He does it so that we can enjoy it. He does it so that we can explore it. When God made the first man and the first woman and placed them in this perfect garden paradise, they were there to enjoy God's creation. And I am convinced for all eternity, we're going to have the privilege of enjoying, experiencing, exploring this new heaven and this new earth that God has created for those who love him. But then notice the second thing. We will also enjoy the presence of God. The Bible says the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. We will know God as he really is. The Bible says this about our relationship right now. It says, now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror, but then we shall see him as he really is. Even though God dwells in every believer today through the power of His Holy Spirit. Spirit, And even though we have experienced His love through the sacrifice of His Son, and even though we experience His protection through our Heavenly Father, we haven't begun to understand the wonder of God. 
D.L. Moody said this. He said, we could spend eternity looking into the face of Jesus. And I believe that. Fanny Crosby, who was born blind, was once asked if she was bitter for not being healed. And this is what she said, oh no, for the first face I will ever see is the face of the one who died for me. Can you imagine being with the one who spoke the world into existence? Being with the one who gave his life so that we could live? Being with the all-powerful, all-knowing God? And he is going to be our Father, our God, forever and ever. But not only will we have a prepared place to enjoy, not only will we enjoy the presence of God, we will have perfect peace. Now we'll have it first of all because sin and Satan will not be there. And, and you know that Satan has been our adversary since man has been on the planet. And because of Satan and because of our poor choices, we have dealt with sin since the beginning, but praise God, in the new heaven and the new earth, Satan will not be there. Sin will not be there. Everything will be perfected. We are told that there won't be hunger and thirst there. Now, most of us in this room have never experienced what it is to really be hungry, to really be thirsty. But understand, there is no hunger. There is no thirst in heaven. The Bible talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. Have you ever been to a party or, or a, a dinner that was prepared, and, and when you walked in, I, I mean, you almost embarrassed yourself because as you looked at the spread of the food, all you could do was open your mouth and go. What we're going to have in heaven is so much better. You say, Rocky, do you really believe that we're going to eat in heaven? I absolutely believe we're going to eat in heaven. We're going to enjoy all of the food that has been prepared for us through the ages. And it's not going to be tainted by sin. And the good news is, no saturated fats. No calories. Now, will there be Krispy Kreme up there? I don't know. Will there be a Bojangles fried chicken for us Baptists? I don't know. But I know that there won't be any hunger or thirst. There won't be any crying or mourning up there. This world is filled with tears and Sorrow, tears of disappointment, tears of shattered dreams, tears of hurt feelings. But in heaven, there is no tears. God will wipe away every reason for our tears. I, I love what the psalmist said. He said, weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. Think about it. And there will be no, no pain or no death. No ambulances screaming down the street, no funeral wreaths hung outside doors, no obituary columns. There'll be no bodies gnarled by arthritis, no blind eyes, no crippled limbs, no bodies wasted away by cancer because there is no sickness, there is no pain, there is no death. It's going to be an incredible place. Heaven is not something that we try to avoid. Heaven is something that we look forward to, that we long for. Heaven is our blessed hope. But let me remind you of what John said again in verse 8 of chapter 21. 
He said, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You see, those who reject God's offer of forgiveness will not be with us in the new heaven and the new earth. One day, someday, every one of us will face eternity. One day, someday, every one of us will live in eternity. The only question is where. William Gladstone was a prime minister and a great leader of Great Britain in the 19th century, and he was also an incredible Christian man. And one day, a young man came to see Gladstone to talk about his future. And as the two were seated, Gladstone at his desk and the man across from his desk, Gladstone asked the young man what he was going to do. And the young man replied, well, I want to pursue my education either at Cambridge or Oxford. And Gladstone said, well, that's good. A, a young man needs a good foundation. And, and then he said, what then? The young man said, well, after I graduate, I want to get a job at a law firm and gain some practical experience because there are things that I will learn there that I can never learn in school. And Gladstone said, that's wise. What then? He said, well, what I would really like to do is serve in government. And if I do well in law, perhaps one day I can sit in the House of Commons and be involved in governing the world through Great Britain and Gladstone said, I appreciate that. We need men in government who are there because they are dedicated to a cause. What then? The young man said, well, sir, I did think about that. And and if I do well in my party, perhaps one day they will choose me to be prime minister. and, And maybe one day I'll be able to sit where you're sitting. And Gladstone said, well, somebody has to sit here. And that's good that you're aiming high. What next? The young man said, well, I've. I've been keeping a diary, and I thought that from the experiences that I've had in life, one day I would write my memoirs, and my memoirs would be able to help other people. Gladstone said, that's great that you've thought ahead, but what next? And the young man said, well, I guess like everybody, I will die. And Gladstone said, you're correct. Whether your goals are achieved, no matter where you see it, you will ultimately die. So what's next? And the young man said, well, I haven't really had time to give much thought to that, to religious things. I've been busy with other things. Gladstone stood up and said, young man, you better go home right now. Kneel beside your bed, open your Bible. And not leave there until you've gotten your life right with God. Because death is something that we all face. And we all better be prepared. So with you, what's next? You see, we all are going to spend eternity somewhere. The only question is where? I want you to bow your head with me. Close your eyes. With your head bowed and with your eyes closed, here's what I believe with all my heart. I believe right here, right now in this hour, you know where you are spiritually. You know whether you have 
repented of your sins and trusted Jesus to be your Savior, you know whether He is living inside of you through the power of His Holy Spirit. You know that. And if you're here and you've never done that, then I want to beg you. I want to plead with you this morning to not wait, not procrastinate, but get ready today for what's next. Because we're all going to face eternity. And so if you're here and you say, Rocky, I want to get ready, then I want to encourage you to humble yourself before God and pray this prayer right now. Heavenly Father, I come to you today humbly asking you to forgive me. I've lived life my way. I've lived as if I were God. Forgive me. I know that my best will never be good enough. I know that I am a sinner. I can never earn heaven. So right here, right now, I'm asking Jesus to save me. Jesus, I believe you died for me. You rose from the grave so I could be forgiven. Save me, Jesus. Come into my life. Take control. From this moment on, I want to live for you. Thank you for hearing me. Thank you for saving me. Now, Father God, for those who prayed that prayer with all of their heart and meant it, I thank you. And Lord, I ask you right now through the power of your Holy Spirit to give them peace that passes understanding. Let them know that, Lord, you heard their prayers. And Father, I pray through the power of your indwelling Spirit, you will give them not only the desire, but the power to live a life completely surrendered to you from this moment on. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.